I'm going to try to allow more time for questions this week than I have uh, in the past. Uh, you know, if, if, if it's true that uh, brevity is the soul of wit, as uh, Shakespeare said, I seem to be coming more and more witless as uh, the years roll on. Uh, it, it's hard for me uh, to state things as briefly as I would like. I, I put some material up on the board here. I haven't gotten uh, to a great deal of it. I have a handout uh, that reproduces and expands upon what I put on the board, and I'll give that, I'll distribute that after the room fills up uh, a little more. Uh, we won't need it at first. But uh, I, I want to concentrate on what the Catechism says regarding justification by faith about Jesus Christ. And if we look at the particular questions uh, that are devoted to that topic in the Catechism, uh, I think, for me at least, they're like pieces of a puzzle. You know, it's like sitting down with a jigsaw puzzle and you have a piece here and you have a piece there and you have another piece uh, somewhere else. And the question is, how does this fit together into an overall picture? How do you put these pieces to of the puzzle together so that we see the, the, the overall picture. Uh, so I, I think there are a lot of background ideas at work uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism, and I'm trying to make them explicit and give some sense of what it looks like when uh, we find the ways in which these interlocking pieces uh, fit together. So uh, I've focused especially on two ideas that I want to reemphasize uh, again this morning. First, the interconnection of faith, grace, and Christ. The Reformation hangs on this interconnection, and it's up here uh, on the, the, for you, the right-hand side of the board. Uh, it'll be on the handout, again, uh, that I'll distribute in a moment. But faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Uh, this seems pretty uh, simple, but it's not always recognized, uh, even in scholarly discussion, that there is this uh, implicit interconnection. So we have the famous phrase, justified by faith. And that's fine as far as it goes, and, and faith is our response uh, to the gospel. But uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read about being justified by grace through faith. Uh, that's an important distinction. By grace means the action has to do with God's grace, and faith is the way we receive this action, through faith. So faith is the instrument of reception. And behind grace and faith, or above them, is Christ himself. So it's Christ, let's just say, operating by grace. You know, that, that, tends, that turns out to involve a, a, a complex uh, range of ideas. You know, Christ operating by grace and then our receiving not only grace, but in the reception of grace, Christ himself. So justification by grace through faith. And the Reformation puts the words alone after faith and uh, grace for reasons that I'll come to uh, as we go along. But faith alone and grace alone. Faith alone means apart from works of the law, apart from works of love. Uh, and when we turn to the catechism, we'll see the catechism 
uh, addresses that point directly, that uh, faith without works is dead, of course, but the, the, what justifies us, as it's sometimes rightly said, is faith plus nothing, nothing that we do on our part. The, the person who has faith and the community that has faith will engage in works of love. You know, if, if you don't engage in works of love, you don't have faith. But it's not the works of love that bring about our justification. And grace alone means without any merit on our part. And especially uh, in a situation where not only do we not have any merit, but what we merit is, is the exact opposite uh, of God's grace. Well, what we merit is rejection. What we merit uh, is judgment. Uh, so justification has to do with how we become acceptable before God uh, in a situation where uh, we are all sinners and have committed sins and have to ask for the forgiveness of sins every day. So sin is what separates us from God and makes uh, fellowship and communion with God impossible. So there, there's a gulf, there's a separation between the sinful human race and God, and that gulf cannot be bridged from the human side. Uh, even uh, our best works, uh, even in a state of grace, if you want to use that idea, we still can't bridge that gulf. It's God who bridges that gulf in Christ. Christ is the bridge that brings God to us and us to Christ. And, and that idea is captured in the phrase that I've spent a lot of time reflecting on with you, in Christ. So in Christ, God comes to us, and in Christ, we are brought uh, into a new uh, and uh, restored relationship with God. So Christ brings about a healing of that uh, wound that separates us from God, the wound of sin and uh, death. So uh, the phrase in Christ uh, turns out to be very important, more important than is often recognized, and, and we find it in the catechism at, at an important point, and this th connection of grace alone, uh, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. So uh, if you have the catechism in front of you, I, I'm going to be referring uh, more directly to the text uh, this morning than I have up until now, so it would be important to look. If, if you look on page 36 uh, and question 56 in the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, here the Catechism is talking about the Apostles' Creed, and toward the end of the Apostles' Creed, if you uh, uh, recall, I believe in the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Catholic Church, and then uh, eventually it says the forgiveness of sins. So the, the, the catechism here is given an explanation of that section, that phrase, in the Apostles' Creed. And it says here, I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, will never hold against me any of my sins, nor my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, in his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. Now these words are very carefully chosen. And for the Reformation, what we find stated here represents the heart of the gospel. Uh, the opposite of sinfulness is righteousness. And righteousness is the necessary condition that has to be present in order for uh, communion and fellowship with God to be possible. 
So if we're in a state of sin, we're cut off from God, uh, we're actually living lives that are hostile to God, contrary to God, uh, in rebellion against God, in disbelief uh, toward God, uh, that has to be overcome if our relationship with God is to be restored. And this question focuses on Christ. First, his atonement. I believe that God, because of Christ's atonement, that refers to the uh, cross of Christ. That's where uh, our sins are born and born away. Uh, think of the Gospel of John in the opening chapter. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, the Lamb of God imagery uh, really has to do with the sacrificial religion of Israel, with the sacrificial lamb, for example. Not so much with courtroom ideas. Courtroom ideas have to be taken uh, seriously. They have to be taken into account. But I think the central ideas for understanding the Reformation and even understanding the Catechism at this point uh, have to do with the sacrificial religion of Israel. So the challenge is how to understand the logic of sacrifice and the logic of the sacrificial religion of Israel alongside the logic of the courtroom, what is sometimes called uh, forensic ways of thinking that may or may not be a familiar term. We use it when we talk about uh, courtroom proceedings or, or police investigations and so on. Uh, another word for forensic is just courtroom. And it turns out that the word justification is a forensic idea. That is, it presupposes some kind of courtroom setting. It, it basically means acquittal. Somehow, uh, God looks upon the sinner and says, not guilty. And not guilty is uh, an expression of acquittal, of justification. But how does a person become not guilty? That's the question. And here I think the logic of the courtroom can't explain that. We, we have to go to other ideas that are implied but not always directly stated. I, I think uh, atonement, Lamb of God imagery, for example, especially the idea of a spotless lamb, you know, Christ is without sin, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What makes us righteous before God through the atoning sacrifice of Christ is something that can't be explained, I think, merely in courtroom terms. It presupposes that we have been made righteous in Christ and by Christ so that we can be acquitted, so that the, the divine pronouncement of not guilty uh, can be uh, stated. But we get a mix, in other words, of courtroom ideas and sacrificial ideas. Perhaps you have heard the term uh, penal substitution. You know, that, that's a common term. I, I think it's really unfortunate. It's really misleading. It's not absolutely wrong. But a better term would be sacrificial substitution because sacrificial evokes uh, the sacrificial practices of the religion of Israel as the background beliefs for understanding what takes place when we have to appear before the judgment seat of God. So somehow atonement here in question 56, because of Christ's atonement, uh, and that means he has borne our sins on the cross 
and removed them. He has overcome them and abolished them because of, in his person uh, and, in, and in his saving death. Because of Christ's atonement, God will never hold against me any of my sins, nor my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. So I, I talked about the difference between sins in the plural, acts of sin, deeds of sin, things that we do, wrongdoing, and then sinful nature. I, I, I evoked the uh, passage uh, from uh, the teaching of Jesus that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit and a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. That's a way of getting at the distinction between sinful nature and sinful deeds. You know, the, the nature of the tree has to do with the nature of the fruit. And if our nature is sinful, our, our deeds will be sinful. But here, the catechism, rightly, you know, interpreting the New Testament, uh, says that whether we're looking at our sinful condition, our sinful nature, or at our uh, sins, at our wrongdoing, both of those aspects are covered by the atonement of Christ, by the cross of Christ. And next week, I'll focus in particular on some uh, ideas that separate the Protestant Reformation from Roman Catholicism. You know, I've hinted at that uh, uh, from time to time. I want to focus on that uh, next week. But let's just remember right now when it says uh, here, never hold against me any of my sins, especially Martin Luther in his great commentary on Galatians says, spells that out, any of my sins, past, present, or future. So all of our sins, are covered, even our future sins, by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So here we get the centrality of Christ. And that's crucial for seeing the link between faith and grace as they lead uh, Christ to us and bring uh, Christ uh, uh, to us. So th there's an implicit uh, connection that the Catechism doesn't uh, spell out between the doctrine of the atonement, what God has done apart from us in Christ, as it comes to its uh, fulfillment and climax on the cross, and the doctrine of justification. So justification depends on the atoning work of Christ. And the atoning work of Christ takes place apart from us. It takes place uh, before we know about it. It takes place before we can recognize it or before we can acknowledge uh, who Christ is and what he has done uh, in our place and for our sakes. Uh, I'll explain those phrases in a moment. But uh, I, I remember when I was a freshman in college, I, I joined a, a Christian fellowship group, and I think it was in the, the first uh, term that uh, they had a retreat. Uh, and we went off you know, to a nice place uh, in, in the mountains uh, somewhere. And the theme was extra nos, which in Latin means apart from us. And, and they emphasize, I mean, I, I, you know, I've been thinking about it ever since. I'm really grateful that this uh, emphasis was introduced to me, you know, in my late teens, you know, that, that Christ died apart from us and that the decisive work of grace on our behalf is not what takes place in our hearts. It's not conversion or religious experience. There's a place for that. But the decisive work of God on our behalf is what God has done for us in Christ apart from us, apart from us before it becomes a part of our lives, before we acknowledge it 
and receive it and are made new by it, transformed by it. So of course, we have to undergo that transition, uh, if possible, from having a heart of stone to being given a heart of flesh uh, and so on. The hardness of our heart towards God has to be overcome. But in the United States, uh, Protestantism, to a large extent, extent, has focused too much on conversion and not enough on the cross of Christ. Too much on conversion is what takes place uh, within us and among us, and not enough on uh, the cross. So it, it makes it seem as if the cross is simply like a grace note or, or a preface to the real work of salvation, which is the transformation of our lives. And that puts the emphasis on Christ in us, Christ in you. you know, that, that's correct. Christ does enter into our hearts and make us into new persons. But the emphasis really needs to be on the externals. That's where it was for Luther and Calvin. It has to be, as we'll see in the last question that the catechism devotes to this, uh, it has to be our being grafted into Christ. Uh, it's not that Christ enters into our hearts only. We are grafted into him. We become members of his body. That again decenters uh, the work of grace away from what's going on in our hearts and toward what God has done apart from us in Christ that makes all the difference for our lives. Of course, it's life-changing, but the decisive point is the atonement and not uh, justification. There's even a contemporary New Testament scholar who I think is not very good on these questions, but he's very popular. His name is N.T. Wright. And somehow, uh, N.T. Wright got the idea. I've met him. I like him. I had dinner with him one time. Uh, N.T. Wright has the idea, uh, I don't know where he got this, that justification uh, has to do with conversion. And you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that at all from reading Luther. You wouldn't think that at all from reading Calvin or, or any people who have ever uh, depended uh, on Luther and Calvin. Uh, conversion is a consequence of the atonement. Conversion is a consequence of justification, but they precede anything that happens in our hearts. So, of course, there's a place for conversion and so on. I, I don't mean to rule it out. It's a matter of ordering the concepts so that they're in a proper relationship with one another. And I'm saying that the decisive work of salvation takes place in Christ apart from us. And justification by, faith, by grace through faith depends on the work of the atonement and then also on Christ's resurrection from the dead. Well, th this may be the, the whole group. Uh, here's, uh, here's a handout I developed uh, to overcome my lack of uh, brevity uh, and witlessness. Uh, <clears throat> just in case I, I won't be able to get to all of it, Actually, I should hang on to one of those uh, myself. Yeah, thanks. You get another one. Yeah. I won't be able to go through all of this with you, but you can uh, read it uh, at your leisure uh, uh, if you wish. Uh, God grants me the righteousness of Christ in his grace. See, notice that in question 56, we, we read about the atonement, we read about God's attitude toward us, not holding against us, against me, any of my sins, my sinful nature. 
by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. The wording of this question focuses on Christ and God's grace. So far, we haven't heard anything about faith. You see that? I want to look at how each question uh, on justification in the catechism centers on the person of Christ. But what makes a new relationship with God possible, what restores us to God, what overcomes our sinfulness that separates us from God and covers all our sins, past, present, and future, is, according to question 56, the righteousness of Christ. We'll see next time, properly understood, this, this is a distinctive teaching of the Reformation that uh, is different from what we normally find in Roman Catholicism. Everything depends on the righteousness of Christ given to us as a free gift. Uh, we need saving righteousness if we are to have a new relationship with God. But the righteousness which saves us is not our own. The righteousness that saves us is the righteousness of Christ grounded in his atoning sacrifice, grounded in his life of obedience, his sinless obedience that culminated uh, in uh, his atoning sacrifice for us uh, to deliver us from our sins. All this has taken place by the grace of God on our behalf, as we'll see in our place, so that God can grant me God can give to me. Uh, if you read the German, uh, at, at this point in the catechism, it's the German word schenk, which is, you know, to give a gift. A geschenk is a gift, schenken is to give. There are more technical terms. You may or may not have heard imputation, impute. I think impute basically means give. It's, just, it's a transfer. There's a real transfer of Christ's righteousness to us in spite of our sinfulness. And, and that's why the great Reformation word is nevertheless. We're not saved because we become more and more righteous in ourselves by our own good works or under the influence of grace. It's, it's not a matter of gradual sanctification. It's God giving us the righteousness of Christ, which is a perfect righteousness. And it's a perfect righteousness uh, that is a saving righteousness. Righteousness would not be a saving righteousness if it were not perfect. And we cannot acquire a perfect righteousness through our own efforts, even under the influence of grace. Even when grace moves in our hearts and makes us new persons, maybe we can approximate that to some extent. But as Luther says, uh, uh, one of the quotations I gave you at the bottom of uh, uh, the uh, page that has the, the, the compartments uh, on it, the, the, the chart, partial righteousness does not justify it's only, it's only righteousness whole and entire that justifies. And how do we receive a perfect righteousness? How does God impart it to us? The catechism doesn't make this as clear as I would like to make it. I, I, I state this at one point in the handout. When Christ gives us himself, when he gives us himself by grace, when he gives us himself by grace to faith, so that faith enters into a relationship with Christ and participates in him. He gives us his benefits. So you can't separate Christ 
and his benefits. And his chief benefit is his perfect righteousness. So he bears away the penalty of sin by taking it to himself on the cross. He dies in our place. And he gives us his perfect righteousness. That, that's why Paul at one point associates uh, justification with resurrection. It's the risen Christ who comes to us through the word of God and through the sacraments in order to give himself to us and in giving us himself gives us his saving benefits, the chief of which is his righteousness because it's righteousness that we need in order to be fit, in order to be suitable to have uh, fellowship with God uh, and uh, to be pleasing to God. Let's go over to question 59. What good does it do you, however, to believe all this? See, here belief has to do with believing that something is the case, you know, the what. But it says that in Christ, see, there's that phrase in Christ, not Christ in us, in Christ. So we're included into Christ. We're incorporated into him. In Christ, I am right with God. It says that I talked about how a better translation would be uh, from the German, I am gerecht for God, I am righteous before God, and heir to life everlasting. At least question 59 in the answer holds together righteousness and life. And when Luther especially wanted to summarize uh, the reformational doctrine of justification, he did it in a simple uh, sentence, right in the middle up there, it's also on the handout, Christ is our righteousness and life. So he himself, and, and we receive that righteousness and life by receiving him by faith, you know, without any merit on our part and apart from works of the law. So faith is the means of reception, and faith is actually the means of participation. Uh, we come to participate in Christ and his righteousness. The reformers would talk about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So we're embraced by it, we're surrounded by it. Uh, it covers uh, uh, the sin that would otherwise make us uh, unacceptable uh, before God. So in Christ, it's not so much Christ in my heart here, we are brought into participation uh, with Christ by grace through faith. We're included in him. We become members of his body. Uh, as Calvin says in one of the quotations uh, uh, on the handout, we are righteous only by participation in him. So the idea of participation and the idea of substitution are crucial here. He died in our place. He took our sins and bore them and bore them away so that they don't fall upon us. That's uh, sacrificial substitution. And... Uh, at the same time, it's as if when he died, we died. And when he rose again from the dead, we rose with him. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? As a matter of fact, you were there. When he died, you died with him. See, this is before you know about it. You were already included. One died for all, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. Therefore, all died. It's an astonishing statement. One died for all, therefore all died. In the Greek, both those words for died are in the airs. It means it's once and for all. So it, it doesn't look like I died. You know, it, it, but mysteriously, by the grace of God, 
in some profound spiritual sense. When he died, he took us with him. He took us with us to the grave. He bore that condemnation on our behalf so that we don't have to bear it in ourselves. And he abolished our sinfulness. And then when he rose again, he also took us with him. We rose with him just as we die with him. And this is all on the objective side. There's a kind of an objective participation in Christ, I'm suggesting, before we come to know about it and participate in it actively and consciously by faith. So I'm not wanting to separate in Christ and in us. They belong together. But I want to put the priority in an unfamiliar place, perhaps, on that externos element before it becomes in nobis. That's the corresponding Latin externos apart from us, in nobis, in us. The in us part depends on the externos part. And the externos part depends on the perfect obedience of Christ, uh, which was substitutionary and culminated in his saving death. How are you right with God? See, here the translators in, in this version uh, again, want to make it uh, a little more straightforward for us. A, a better way of translating the German in question 60 would be, how are you righteous before God, in the eyes of God? What makes you really righteous? And then, so we saw in uh, question 56, the emphasis was on grace. In his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ. Here we get faith. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ are we righteous before God? See, what the catechism doesn't do is connect the grace piece of the puzzle with the faith piece of the puzzle. It's implicit. See, I, that's what I want to do with faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. Uh, it's by grace through faith, by true faith in Christ. So then what? Even though my conscience accuses me, as it will continue to do, of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, uh, even if you're a sensitive person and uh, realize uh, in, in your heart and feel uh, shame and contrition uh, about sins that you, you may commit, even maybe besetting sins that you can't seem to shake off, even though my conscience accuses me, even though is that nevertheless emphasis, and of never having kept any of them, because to violate any one of them is to have violated them all, according to the letter of James. And even though I am still inclined toward all evil, I have that inner inclination toward sin. Nevertheless, even though, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace. So now we get a connection of faith with grace. Out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me. I, I would say credits involves transferring, giving to me. God grants and credits to me what? The perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Uh, I think this has to do with the person and work of Christ. Uh, in his person and in his work, he lived that life of being God's perfect covenant partner. He lived a life of righteousness before God. He was without sin that we didn't live. And he not only did it for us, he did it in our place. There's that vicarious element to it so that we are objectively included in this substitutionary work, I think. I want to connect substitution and participation 
in ways that uh, are unfamiliar in the tradition. But I think they're rooted in the sacrificial religion of Israel and, and its courtroom imagery. I mean, uh, uh, courtroom uh, ideas are kind of external relations. You know, if, if you're ever the victim of a crime, you know, and you have to go to court, it can almost seem as if all these proceedings are taking place over your head. You know, it's, it's as if, you know, uh, you, you were uh, injured somehow, you were grieved, uh, you suffered a great loss, uh, but uh, the courtroom doesn't care much about that. They're, they're just trying to figure out uh, what, what the right punishment uh, would be for uh, the perpetrator, and then a, a, a verdict is pronounced and you go home and you know, you're kind of left with your own grief, your own predicament. It's retributive justice, but it's not restorative justice. The sacrificial religion of Israel has to do with restoration, not with retribution. It presupposes that the wages of sin is death. It presupposes that we stand under condemnation apart from the intervention of grace. But the sacrificial religion of Israel has nothing to do with placating an angry God. God in mercy establishes these strange procedures as in Passover, as in Yom Kippur, uh, so that the mercy of God can prevail and restore the people corporately uh, to himself in spite of their sins. So it presupposes the plight of sin, it presupposes the problem of sin, but the whole point of uh, these sacrificial practices, as strange as they are to us, and, and they are strange, they begin in the mercy of God, they're accompanied by the mercy of God, and they result in the mercy of God. They are instituted by God as a way of removing sin, not just punishing it, but removing it, removing sin so that we can be restored to God. And sin is removed by being transferred to that sacrificial animal in order that, in, in effect, the innocence of the sacrificial animal can be transferred to us. It's kind of a Christian interpretation of what takes place uh, in Israel, but the, the basic logic of it is the logic of exchange, which I lay out in some detail uh, on the handout for today. If you didn't get one of those handouts, be sure to pick one up uh, before you go if you wish. But the logic of, of the exchange is that there's one innocent one who dies in the place of the guilty. So the guilt of the guilty is, in effect, transferred to the sacrificial animal, which, whether it's Passover or Yom Kippur, should be uh, a spotless, uh, uh, a healthy, you know, a perfect, uh, insofar as possible, animal. There, there's a critique later on in one of the prophets where, where the people were bringing diseased animals to be sacrificed. Uh, and you know, it kind of undercuts the whole purpose and meaning of the sacrifices. You know, we'll just get rid of this defective animal. Uh, the, but no, it, it, the, it says the innocent is put in the place of the guilty and dies the death of the guilty so that, in exchange, the guilty can receive the innocence of the one. So the many guilty trans can have their sins transferred to the innocent one. And the innocence of the innocent one, in turn, is transferred uh, to the people. 
this is especially brought out. So I'm, I'm trying to bring out substitution, participation, and exchange. And, and I lay that out uh, uh, in the handout. But 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is cited uh, it, it, as a footnote uh, in the catechism, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he made him for our sakes, he, God, made him Christ for our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. I mean, from a, from a legal standpoint, nothing could be more unjust. Nothing could be more outrageous. How is it that the one who knew no sin was made to be sin? That's what it says. It's got the sacrificial practices in the background. He made for our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, there's that in him, participation, in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if Christ is our righteousness and life, interpreted in light of 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is absolutely bedrock for the whole New Testament and for the Reformation, the deepest mystery of the Christian faith is embedded in this verse, which has to do with this exchange. He takes our sin and our death to himself at infinite personal cost and gives us his righteousness and life. So there's that double transfer. Our sin and death go to him. He takes them voluntarily to himself. He takes them to the bitter end. You might say to the grave. He abolishes them in his person. We die with him. And then through his resurrection, so, it, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We get that gift of righteousness. That question... Uh, 56 said, God grants to us, God grants to us the righteousness of Christ. So it comes through participation in the context of, of this sacrificial exchange. So we're in Christ, the, the, uh, he takes our place, and he puts us in his place through the pattern of exchange, the great pattern of exchange. So th these are the key ideas that are often not held together, participation, substitution, and exchange. But I think that gives us the shape of the larger puzzle within which these pieces that we find uh, stated in the catechism fit together. We need those background ideas. They're actually present if you read the footnotes that cite scripture passages and, and see how to, to put them together. But it, it's that perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holy Christ, holiness of Christ that uh, are given to us, God grants and credits to us, imparts to us, gives us, as if we had never sinned or been sinners, as if we had been perfectly obedient, as Christ was obedient for us. He was obedient for us, for our sakes, and in our place. There's a substitutionary logic here. You can't get this idea of substitution out of a courtroom logic. It, it's, it's that sacrificial logic of the religion of Israel, these strange transfers, these strange transactions that are in the background. Why do you say, question 61, why do you say that by faith alone, see now we get faith alone, you are right with God. Again, you are righteous before God. You have that uh, spiritual situation, that spiritual disposition, that spiritual condition, which 
makes it possible for you to enter uh, into a renewed uh, relationship of reconciliation with God. It is not because of any value my faith has. Again, the German is a little different. It's not because of any worthiness that my faith has. Uh, so th there's no merit even to faith. Faith is the vehicle of reception, but it's not a meritorious work. It's not because of any value or worthiness that my faith has, that God is pleased with me, that God accepts us. Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness, again, that's repeated from question 60, make me right with God. Give us the righteousness of God, and I can never receive this righteousness. Now the translators uh, have to break away from right with to the term righteousness. It, it, you wouldn't know that that's been present more explicitly all along from the way this translation goes, but now they can't avoid it. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. So faith alone is the means of reception. And it's not just faith in the abstract, it's not just a condition of faithfulness, it's not just a disposition, it has an object. And the object of faith is Jesus Christ. We have faith in Jesus Christ, and faith in Jesus Christ means that, yes, we are inserted into him, as it were, made members of his body, but then he also enters into us, into our lives, into our hearts, and he gives us that righteousness and that life before God that would otherwise be impossible for us. So this is entirely a work of grace. It's entirely a free gift. And faith is the means by which we receive that free gift. It, it doesn't contribute to the free gift. It's not part of the free gift in terms of meriting anything. Uh, it, it's sort of empty hands, turning to God again and again, with uh, empty hands. Let's just look at the last uh, questions here and then I'll throw it open for questions. Question 62, why can't the good we do make us right with God, give us righteousness before God, or at least help make us right with him? See, the Catholics think that uh, it does do that. Because the righteousness which can pass God's scrutiny must be entirely perfect. See, partial righteousness does not justify that it has to be spotless, as it were. It has to be perfect. It's the spotlessness of Christ, the Lamb of God. It's not something we can acquire through our own efforts, uh, even uh, under the influence of grace. The righteousness must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. The, uh, the law of God, I think, is not something different from God. Absolutely. It's not you have God here and the law of God there. The law of God is an expression of God's own holiness, of God's own righteousness. A righteous God requires a righteous people. And if we don't live according to the law of God, we have separated ourselves from righteousness and from the possibility of living uh, in harmony and in reconciliation with a God who is perfectly and purely holy and righteous. So righteousness and holiness go together on the one side, sinfulness goes together on the other, how do we get overcome uh, the plight of our sinfulness? Not by any righteousness of our own, but the righteousness of Christ through God's intervention, through the work of grace, apart from us, that deals with our sin, removes it, 
bears that judgment upon it so that it doesn't fall upon us. And uh, he gives us his righteousness and life, having taken uh, away from us our uh, sin and death. Even the very best we do in this life is imperfect and stained with sin. And that's true not only before faith, but also after faith. It's true in a state of grace. Even the very best we can do, in some sense, not in the same way, before and after, but still, it's imperfect and stained with sin. We need a perfect righteousness, entirely perfect. Partial righteousness does not justify. We get that in and through Christ. 63, how can you say that the good we do doesn't earn anything? It's a problem of merit, doesn't merit anything. When God promises to reward it in this life and the next, this might be a, a kind of Roman Catholic question in the background, don't we, don't we merit it to some extent? The reward is not earned, says the answer. It's not merited, it's a gift of grace. This is what's so hard for us to believe, actually, that God just gives us everything. In, in giving us himself, Christ gives us everything. There's a great book on the Jansenists in the 17th century, the title, God Owes Us Nothing. God owes us nothing. I mean, if that idea doesn't make your blood, uh, uh, your pulse a, a little faster, uh, you're not a Calvinist. Uh, God owes us nothing, but God gives us everything. In giving us Christ, he gives us everything. He owes us nothing. In fact, what he owes us is judgment and condemnation if we were to remain sinners. But in mercy and grace, he gives us everything in giving us himself uh, in Jesus Christ. So uh, when we receive Christ by faith, we receive his benefits of righteousness and life. And now, finally, in question 64, we get just a suggestion of what I've been uh, emphasizing uh, more explicitly. Doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? The answer is no. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. In other words, good works, works of love, works of justice. It happens through being grafted into Christ. See, not that Christ enters into us, of course that goes with it, but our being grafted into him. He's the Lord of the body. He's the head. We, we become members of his body. And then uh, through that participation in Christ, we are inclined and enabled to do works of love in spite of any sin that may still cling so uh, closely. Uh, there are parts of the Reformation churches where the, the message of free grace has led people to a kind of uh, moral or ethical indifference or, you know, it doesn't really, I don't have to do anything uh, in order to gain God's good pleasure, so therefore uh, uh, I, uh, I can just uh, not care much about the works of love and works uh, of justice. Uh, Look, the Reformation takes it out of the realm of necessity, I'll close on this, and puts everything in the realm of freedom. What do I have to do to make myself acceptable before God? What do I have to do to make myself righteous or holy? The Reformation says nothing. But the answer is, what do you want to do? This is what God has done for you. 
This is how much God has loved you. Look at Christ on the cross. Look at what God had to undergo in order to save us, deliver us from sin and death. What do you want to do? Henceforth, says Luther, there's nothing for me but to live a life of gratitude. And a life of gratitude will be a life of free response in love to the free grace of God. It takes it out of the realm of necessity and puts everything in the realm of freedom. And there's a, a, a statement from a, a, an anonymous 17th century figure that I put on the handout where someone said, I had rather face a legion of the king's army with drawn swords than one lone Calvinist convinced that he was doing the, word, the will of God. So Calvinists have wanted to make that response of works, that response of works of love in response to the free grace of God. Grace elicits gratitude, and there can be no gratitude without a free response of love to God and in and through God and Christ uh, to others. So uh, the motivation for doing good works flows from gratitude and not from some perceived necessary necessity that if I don't uh, conform to the law of God, my salvation is in jeopardy. Your salvation has been dealt with by Christ on the cross. Your sin and your death was borne by him so that he might give you his righteousness and life. Therefore, what do you want to do? Henceforth, there is nothing for me but to live a life of gratitude. That's the Reformation.